Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church. I hope that you are doing great tonight, and we welcome you to our Saturday evening broadcast. It is awesome that you have chosen to spend some time with us, and we thank you. If you're a part of our church, welcome back. And if this is your first time with us, we welcome you. We encourage you to check out our website at newarkupc.info where you can find out everything you need to know about us. Chances are you might have even found us there, but if you found us on YouTube or on Facebook and you want to know more about us, check us out at newarkupc.info. You can find out all kinds of information there. Before I begin tonight with our evening message, I also want to give uh, a shout out to Pastor Stan Seth and his team at Wilmington Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Thank you, Pastor Seth for allowing us to use your building today to baptize Shernette Lawrence in the wonderful name of Jesus. Church, this is exciting. Shernette came to us on our digital campus through our broadcast, and uh, we are so excited that we were able to baptize her. Pastor Arash baptized her in the name of Jesus, the only saving name this afternoon. Now, some of you may be saying, why are you baptizing her at Wilmington Apostolic? Well, if you haven't been paying attention or haven't recognized, we are in the midst of a major renovation of our physical campus. The damage that occurred back in the summer from a tornado has caused us to have to get a new roof, the ceiling redone, the paint, the uh, sanctuary is going to be repainted, new carpet, new pew. Well, you're not getting pews, you're getting pew chairs. All kinds of work is being done. So right now our baptistry was out of commission due to that. And so again, we thank Pastor Seth and his team for allowing us to use his facilities in Wilmington. They're doing a great work for God as well. And if you're listening to this broadcast and you live close to him, feel free to check them out as well. And again, you do a search for Wilmington Apostolic Pentecostal Church and you'll find them. They are a great church. And again, thank you, Pastor Seth and Shernette. Welcome to the family. We're excited to have you with us. Well, tonight is our Saturday evening broadcast, and if you've been paying attention this week, we're supposed to be talking about servanthood and the various aspects and, and attributes of, of being a servant. And um, one of the prerogatives, I guess, that I have as, as being the senior pastor is that every once in a while I get, off, I get to go off books. And uh, so all week I've been kind of discussing with the Lord whether I should take the topic that was supposed to be a part of this series or whether I was supposed to deal with something else. And today it crystallized for me that in fact, what's been kind of percolating in my spirit over the last, probably close to a month, uh, I am supposed to deal with. Now, some of you may remember an address the last time I went off books, which was on January 6th. And uh, I'll mention that a little bit later in my message tonight. But I feel to return there, I addressed you there and I called it an address uh, to the Christians of America. And so tonight, I want to bring you another address to the Christians of America. And uh, I want to start with, with a, uh, a story and a passage that, that we all know, and in fact, we use it quite a bit. The broader context is, is that King David um, wanted to build God a house. King David was living in a palace. It was a beautiful place. And uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to build God something as beautiful as his own home. He felt that it was just wrong that while he was living in a palace, God was living in a tent, the tabernacle that we find in the Old Testament that traveled with the children of Israel um, throughout the desert. 
And so he approached God about this. And initially, the prophet of God told David, go ahead. And then the Lord basically said, no, I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. And the reason is, is you have shed much blood and you have fought many battles. You can find this in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. But what God did do was allow him to plan, to prepare, and to gather the materials which his son Solomon could then use to build the temple. And so uh, tonight, as I move through my message, you will see in the chat, uh, Sister Joyce has been kind enough to get on and just kind of post scriptures for you. So uh, you can follow along. You can even click on a hyperlink there and and bring the text up on your phone or on your device, wherever you're watching, to follow along. I will be reading uh, the text as well. And so we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 22, so Solomon finished the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do in the construction of the temple and the palace. Then one night, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times, God says, I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Verse 14, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it for it is dear to my heart. As for you, if you faithfully follow me as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty. For I have made this covenant with your father David when I said one of your descendants will always rule over Israel. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the decrees and commands I have given you, And if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot the people from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make it an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be because his people abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt, and they worshiped other gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why he brought all these disasters on them. Now, if you have been around the church for any length of time, you have probably heard 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 used as a call for the church to intercede on behalf of the nation. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Now, the first problem that I want you to recognize is one that's right there on the surface. If you, a Christian, are serving God, you are living righteously, And 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 
is your instructions to intercede on behalf of your fellow humans that are in your nation. To have God turn things around for the nation. You're not understanding this verse. Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 is addressed to the nation of Israel, all of whom are God's people. And God says, anytime I bring a curse upon you, anytime I send grasshoppers or I send a drought or I send some kind of punishment to get your attention, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Dear brothers and sisters, you cannot repent on behalf of your nation. You can repent on behalf of yourself, but you cannot repent on behalf of your nation. And herein lies the problem with this passage of scripture and how we typically use it. We forget its context. We forget that this is about a God who has made a covenant with a people and a land. He's made a covenant with a people and a land and a location, specifically the city of Jerusalem, and specifically his temple. And that's why I read you the larger context, so you could go back and check that out, make sure that I'm not misunderstanding this, because you got to understand that while there are things in common between the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and the church, the church is not Israel. I want you to hear me very clearly on that. The church is not Israel. I can't, for sake of time tonight, I can't spend a lot of time on this, but very quickly, the church's identity does not lie in human physical markers of identification, such as circumcision, a land, a city, a temple. Instead, we are spiritually marked by Calvary. God used physical markers in the life of the nation of Israel to draw Israel into a closer relationship with him. But for us, with the purchase of the sin of the world at the cross, God now calls every single human being into a direct spiritual relationship with him that then results in physical markers. Israel got the markers first as an attempt to draw them closer to God. God enters into our lives directly now after Calvary and begins to spiritually change us. And as he spiritually changes us, we begin to become distinct. In other words, Israel started on the external with an attempt to change the internal. God has now, since Calvary, begun to work on the internal. And the results begin to show externally. Paul is very clear that Israel and its example and its law and its customs, they were all the schoolmaster, an imperfect preparation until Christ came. Now here's where I need you to understand something. Not only is the church not Israel, America is not Israel. Hear me very clearly when I say God has not chosen America. 
Now, this is the part where some of you may begin to bristle and you may begin to have trouble. And so I need you to be disciplined and I need you to listen to me and listen to me very carefully. You cannot find scripture that establishes that America is Israel, that America is God's chosen people. In a blog that's dated January 16th, 2017, a gentleman wrote an article called America, a new Israel or a new Babylon. Knowing the difference makes all the difference. In this, he states, and please understand, the reason that I quote this blog is not because everything in it is accurate, but simply because when someone states something well, I don't see the point of me reworking it. And so I give the credit to this gentleman and the links will be in, in the chat for you if you want to read the entire article. Not everything in it is accurate. Not everything in it is correct. But in it, he states this. He says, while I could offer myriad critiques of the ways Christians politic in America, perhaps one of the most significant mistakes that they make is the most subtle. They use the wrong scriptural metaphor to understand the relationship between the church and the United States. Bluntly speaking, too many Christians either tacitly or explicitly assume that the U.S. is like a new Israel, a Christian nation, when in reality, the better metaphor is America as Babylon. Operating in the wrong metaphor frustrates Christian expectations and hopes for the land they live in, and it also leads to us at times harming our neighbors who have different beliefs, values, and perspectives from our own. Of course, seeing this land as a place for a Christian country is as old as the early European settlers. Now, for sake of time, I'm going to skip a few paragraphs where he lays out that history, all the way back to the Puritans and, and following. And then he goes on, he says, there is just one problem with the model of the United States as a new Israel or as a Christian nation. America's founding documents make such a model unintelligible. Plainly stated, nowhere in the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution does it state the purpose and call of the United States of America as being to recognize and worship Jesus Christ as Lord of the universe. Nor do these documents reference that the cause of this new government is to proclaim and embody the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom on this earth. Given that Thomas Jefferson was a deist who famously made his own version of the New Testament that cut out all of the miracles and supernatural elements within it, his references to a creator and providence point to a more generic God than to one that resembles the God of Christian faith. Even if you set Jefferson aside, having myriad Christians involved in the founding of the country or having a populace that was or still is largely Christian does not make the U.S. government or its interests Christian. One can argue that Christian-influenced ethics and concerns influences the nation at its beginning and still holds sway. But Christian-influenced 
and being Christian are not the same thing. The United States is something else. Now, he does a few other things, and then the final piece I want to read to you is, the better and more accurate metaphor for Christians living in America would be to see their situation as akin to living in Babylon. For those of you unfamiliar with the biblical narrative, Babylon was a superpower in the ancient Near East that forcibly made the kingdom of Judah a client state in the late 7th century before the Common Era, and eventually, between 597 and 582, deported masses of Judahites out of Judah and into Babylon. And significant to Jewish history, did what God warned, destroyed Solomon's temple. Historians refer to this as the Babylonian captivity. Until the Persians conquered the Babylonians and let the Jews return home in 536 before the Common Era, they lived as strangers in a foreign land. Certainly, Christians as Christians did not have their homeland destroyed and get dragged off into captivity in North America. That is not where the comparison lies, and I would not want to disrespect the experience that was Israel's. The author goes on to say, instead, the idea is that Christians already have a political and peopled identity, and it is called the church. The church is a people that is spread all across the world in many nations whose allegiance is to the God of Israel. This politic is more ultimate than any national identity or destiny. And the church's call is to proclaim a king and a kingdom more determinative than a liberal democracy. With such a citizenship and allegiance, Christians cannot help but be like strangers in America in any other land in which they live. Trying to usher in a Christian kingdom via the means, the mechanisms, and the force of a secular state becomes unintelligible, particularly when one worships a crucified God who willingly eschewed and absorbed the violence and the domination of the state rather than adopting them as legitimate. Jesus engaged, and that was the end of the quote from this gentleman. Jesus engaged the Roman state with this statement to Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. You have no authority over me, Pontius Pilate. And frankly, beyond saving your soul, I am not interested in your political aims. I don't have the same kingdom. I don't have the same values. I don't have the same goals. See, folks, you got to remember, America is not Israel. God is not American. The destiny of the kingdom of God is in no wise linked to or dependent upon America. And America is not obedient to the kingdom of God, nor has it 
ever been. To claim that America is Christian or ever has been is to ignore perhaps the greatest sin of America, the enslavement of our fellow human beings. You cannot claim, despite the stories of the Puritans, despite the stories of the disaffected Christians who sought in America a place to practice their religion, you cannot claim that America has ever been Christian. For to do so is to invalidate the story and the value of a whole group of people that I call my dearest friends. America's never been Christian. God has never been American. A while back, I got in some trouble with some of you. I do not want to devalue the sacrifices of our men and women who have served in the military, but please understand their service in the military is not the same as their service in the kingdom. They are two distinct and separate realms, and they have nothing to do with either of each other. When I removed the American flag from our sanctuary, there were some elders who, with strong words, remonstrated with me and said, what are you doing? Why are you being disrespectful? But see, you've got to understand something. When Christians merge America with the church, grave damage is done. Is done. When the church and an empire of any form or fashion become one and the same, the church ceases to exist, and God is no longer who we worship. You see, the character, the goals, the morals, and the values of the church are so sharply different than any human institution can possibly be. You see, the kingdom of God is characterized by love. That's its dominant characteristic. No human empire, albeit democracy or not, has ever been characterized by love. God does not love America. God loves the world. Jesus did not die for America. Jesus died for the world. I didn't say that America is not a part of the world. I did not say America is not a part of the world. God loves America because it's a part of the world. God died on the cross for America because it's part of the world. But God did not die. He does not love exclusively America. We are not the new Israel. You got to understand something about this love of God. Even when the world rejects him, like the rich young ruler did, go and read that passage. Jesus still loves the world. This love is not a characteristic. It's not, a, it's not an attribute. It's, it's, not, it's not just some feature of God. No, it is his very identity. John chapter 13 verses 34 through 35, he said to his disciples, so now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. 
Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. My dear brothers and sisters, if you've read this passage and thought Jesus is instructing that his disciples love his disciples and only his disciples, you've missed the point. Who did Jesus love? When Jesus entered this earth, when he began to walk upon this earth, there were no followers of Jesus. He loved them all before they were following. Paul writes in Romans, God commends, he demonstrates, he shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were not yet following him, he died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No, the love like he loved is a love for every single human being. And if you don't believe me, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 tells us, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see, the love of God is not dependent upon the character of a person. It's an expression of the character of God. The love of God is not dependent upon whether a person responds positively or negatively to the invitation of the gospel. It is an expression of the gospel. It cannot, whether rejected or accepted, cease to exist because it is God. You see, a Christian cannot be associated with anything that in any way sullies the love of God that he has given us through the Holy Spirit. Now, please hear me very clearly. You and I cannot love this way without the Holy Spirit. We cannot love the way God loves without the power of God working within us. But as Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 5, he gave us the Holy Spirit, which has shed abroad in our hearts and our minds, his love. So if you are to be a Christian, if you are attempting to be a Christian, you cannot be associated with anything that sullies or besmirches or affects the world's view of an absolutely unconditional love that God has for humanity. Now, let me be very pointed. A Christian cannot associate themselves with the events of January 6, 2020. They cannot associate themselves with the political movements that have been occurring prior to January 6th and following January 6th. Let me be clear. Associate is defined as to allow oneself to be connected with or seem to be supportive of. Now, if you want my specific response to January 6th, to the storming of the Capitol and the things surrounding that. You can go back to our media archives and click the link that's just been posted or will be posted in the chat. 
my first address to the Christians of America. Now, I understand that this that I'm speaking here is important, but I don't know how many are seeing it. I don't know how many will see it. I don't even know how many of you are watching right now. Perhaps this message tonight is simply a caution to my children who are watching. And that would be enough. And maybe it's even direction to Newark United Pentecostal Church and its members whom I have the privilege of pastoring. But I feel it is also a prophetic word of warning and correction to the American church and the apostolic Pentecostal church in particular. I argued with God. I said, God, that sounds grandiose. I don't even know if anybody's listening. I don't even know if somebody's going to watch it. God said, it's not the point. Speak the word. My dear brothers and sisters across the United States of America, you, if you have allowed yourself in any way to be associated with, to seem to be supporting the political mess that is happening in our country, you have been led astray by politicians and demagogues. They are manipulating your desire for righteousness, even as the serpent manipulated the first humans. They're promising you the kingdom of God here on earth. That is simply not possible. No human, no human institution can ever give you the kingdom that only comes from God. If God were to grant you a Christian nation, if God were to grant you a righteous nation, if God by some means had that goal and was to make America the new Jerusalem, what would that say about his love for Russia or China or India or Venezuela or Cuba or Japan or Korea or Indonesia? Are you so caught up in being American that you have lost sight that you are strangers and foreigners, temporary residents from another kingdom? Peter writes us exactly that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. I know you think that those worldly desires are sin. Some of you, those worldly desires are a desire to live in a world that affirms you. It's a desire to live in a world that feels comfortable to you. You were not called to live in a world that is comfortable to you. You were not called to live in a world that affirms you. You were called to live in a world in which your very existence bears witness that this world is damned, this world is in trouble, and this world needs a savior. You're not meant to be comfortable. You're not meant to fit in. You're not meant to be okay. You're meant to stand out. Peter goes on, verse 12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. I do not want to be judgmental here. I do not want to condemn, but allow me to insert here in the middle. Some of my Pentecostal brothers and sisters were at that rally. I don't know if you left when it got 
violent. I don't know what you did, but you cannot be associated with the kingdom of this world. You are called to be of the kingdom of God and not of this world. The goals, the mechanisms, and the means of political power in this world are at odds with the power of God. Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, the kings and the rulers of this world know how to exercise power. They know how to rule their people. It must not be so in my kingdom. Peter goes on, verse 13. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will, Christian, that your honorable lives should silence these ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So you don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. My brothers and sisters, I'm watching what you're posting. And please, Newark UPC, I, I'm proud of you, but I need to warn you. But there's a larger audience that may hear what I'm saying here. I'm watching what you're posting. How do you expect to reach that lost politician when you are posting the nastiness you're posting? Your goal here is not to change the political world. It is to bear witness to the saving grace of a God who died for that human being. What do you want done with that transgendered person that you are making fun of? What do you want done with that fornicator or adulterer? What do you want done with that homosexual? What do you want done? Some of you are posting things that is as, it is as if Jesus did not die for them, that his gospel cannot reach them, that his blood cannot wash them. Hear me, church. No, no, and no again. Where sin doth abound, grace doth much more abound. Such were some of you, Paul wrote, to the church at Ephesus. But you were bought. You were purchased. You were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I do not mean to condemn you, but I do mean to convict you. Take down your hatred. That is the seeds of politics. That is the seeds of the kingdoms of this world. That is that whole thing of we are special and we are above and beyond and we are to be treated differently where Jesus said, not in my kingdom. He would be greatest. Let him be the servant to all. A Christian must be known. By his or her love. Some of you are being nasty. You're being hateful. Repent. Stop. It is not of God. He is not pleased. He asks you to deny yourself, not fight for your rights. Apostle Paul, in the passage just preceding Romans 13, where he very clearly lays out that we are to submit to governing authorities. 
Again, for sake of time tonight, I'm not going to spend time on that. I do address that in my previous message that I referenced on January 6th. But before that, he says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. I see some of you posting pictures that is blasphemous. Why would those people, whoever it is that you're posting about, ever listen to you with the nastiness coming out of your mouth? Why would our current president ever hear the correction of the gospel when you're posting pictures of him as if he's the antichrist or the devil? Even Jesus did not raise his hand nor his voice against his betrayer because God is love. To the moment Judas hung himself, Jesus loved him. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. One of our dear sisters in our church always warns me, don't, don't kick the pail. I guess a reference to, you know, milking a cow and then at the last moment spilling all the milk. Well, I think I've already kicked the pail, so let me just go one step further. My dear brothers and sisters, your rights to anything do not trump your responsibility as a Christian. Just because America gives you permission to protest something doesn't mean as a Christian you have permission to protest something. Is it honorable? Is it peaceful? What does it do to your message and your witness? Paul says in verse 19, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, you feed them. If they are thirsty, you give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. And then the crescendo, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil. By doing good. Or to put it in the terms of Romans 14, 16, a couple of chapters later. Therefore, do not let what you consider good be spoken of as evil. 
to my children. I don't care who gives you the model of this. You are first and foremost Christians. No national identity trumps this. And your identity as a Christian binds you with all of humanity across the world, regardless of what political system they live in. You know that I have taught you that one of the most precious human documents that you can have is a United States passport. I am not against being an American and I'm not against living in this country, but I am 100% unequivocally denouncing that American identity cannot take precedence over my identity with Jesus. And my identity with Jesus causes me to be at odds routinely with the goals of America. I am thankful that I have not had to have those odds reach a place of imprisonment. But you hear me very clearly, my dear children. Your identity is not set by the nation you live in. It is not set by your ethnicity. It is not set by your background, your culture, or your language. It is set by Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, and the blood he shed at Calvary. And nothing may trump that. Don't allow anything in your life to ever subvert that. To the church that I pastor, thank you for allowing me to warn you and guard you so that we are a place that receives people of all nations and all creeds and all tongues and all skin colors. But please understand this beautiful place that we have, it will not be maintained unless we fight for it. And we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not fight against human means and we don't use human mechanisms. We do not fight physically, but we spiritually fight. We fight by cleaning our hearts out. We fight by allowing the Holy Spirit of God to shed love abroad in our hearts. When sinners look more loving than us, we need to fix it. So fight for this body that you belong to. Do not allow your political opinions to subvert your Christian identity to the broader audience that maybe only one or two. And maybe I'm just full of myself and no one else will listen to this, but on the off chance that one of you hears this address, stop allowing the politicians and the deceitful tongues of this world to deceive you to direct you down a path that is wrong. And to my fellow pastors and preachers, political power is alluring. The political game is alluring. The courts, the legislatures, the executive branch, it's all alluring. For those of you that know me, you want to understand why I'm plain spoken? It's because I'm crafty. I know what it is to be a politician. I'm plain spoken so I can be saved. I dabbled for a time with the idea of trying to help the world through politics. I realized that that was not the answer. The answer is the love of God that was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the love that was demonstrated on a cross by a Jewish man who had all the power in heaven and earth, but did not use it did not exercise his rights 
in order to do something bigger, save the world. In this address, another address to the Christians of America, I call on you to repent. I call on you, go back over your Facebook timelines and take down your hatred. Clean out your nastiness. I understand you may have started with the right intent. I understand you may have thought you were standing for righteousness, but you are not. Go find me in the Gospels where Jesus condemned the sinner. In fact, his fights were always with the righteous who wanted him to condemn. He would refuse to do so because he was there to save the sick. It's in the scriptures. You don't have to make this up. It's crystal clear. It's present. You're not to fight for your way. You're to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Heavenly Father, I ask for your people to repent, Lord, and I repent with them, but not so you can save our nation, so you can save us. Forgive us our hubris and our pride. The fact that we Christians are so heavily embroiled in the ungodly activities that are currently happening in our nation, forgive us, Master. Have mercy on us. Love us despite our ignorance and our foolishness and our pride. God, I humbly submit my words in your word that it may do the work for which you have asked me to speak it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To all of you that have stayed with me through this a little bit longer broadcast, I thank you. I pray that you did not hear words of condemnation, even as they may have been correction. Rather, it's a call to get back to who we are, Christians, followers of Jesus, people who know who we are, that we are characterized by love and only love, that we will overcome evil by doing good, by loving our enemies, by blessing those who curse us, by being good to those who persecute us. To my children, I pray that you will take this message and put it deep within your hearts and don't let anyone take it away. I am in submission to authority, but I also know there are moments where God takes someone and has them as Peter and Paul demonstrating Galatians, there are times when you are wrong. The one who by the word knows they are right. It is appropriate to withstand you. So I do. I speak to every single Christian. If your Facebook posts, if your Instagram posts, if your emails, if your language, if your text messages, if how you speak and think of those who are sinners is not in absolute, unequivocal love. When this broadcast ends, drop your nose into your carpet, 
find a corner in your house and pray that God would shed his love abroad in your heart once again by his Holy Spirit. And to my Newark family, let us continue to be a light. Let us not let any of this world come in. In Jesus' name. I love you all. Again, to our first-time guests, thank you for being here. I hope I haven't scared you away. If you want to know more about us, go to newarkupc.info. You can find out all kinds of things. We meet every night, except for Monday night, Tuesday through Sunday, 7 o'clock. We have small groups that meet together. You can submit prayer requests, baptism requests. The outset of the program tonight, I mentioned that we baptized a lady today in Jesus' name, and we're rejoicing with Shernette in her baptism in Jesus' name. You can partner with us in giving. Anything you need to know, newarkupc.info. To the rest of you, have a great night, and God bless you, and I love you with everything in me.